I got some, my mic is always blocking me. Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy and a special guest from Pender Island, from his uh, enclave, secret enclave, Kurt Levins. Welcome, Kurt. <laughs> Hi, fellas. I don't know if I'm I'm special. <laughs> You're special uh, I'll, to I'll, us. I'll, I'll buy guest. But anyway, thanks for the introduction. It's great <laughs> to be here as always. <laughs> Kurt, um, you've been, again, leading the way in, in many regards in terms of coming up with uh, some interesting uh, hockey trade rumors involving the Oilers. And it strikes me, and I'm just trying to, I know I've been reading rumors in recent weeks that the Oilers have been thinking of moving a defenseman. And one of the thoughts with Clefbaum is he's, they don't know if they can trust his health. And did you put that out, Kurt? And I'm just trying to think if you put, tweeted that out or was in one of your columns or... Has no, else uh, um, I, I, you might remember I put out the OEL uh, thing a couple of weeks ago. And yeah. specifically, I said, I, I, I've been told by someone who knows the player. I, to be clear, I don't know the player. But yeah. I've been told by someone who does know the player that he's willing to waive. That ain't an issue. Um, uh, and the ties between uh, the coaching staff, think not just Tippett. There's two guys behind that bench that OEL has played for and really, really respected. Uh, so there's no issue with him coming here. And from what I understand, the organization, they like Oscar Clefbaum. However, uh, this is a guy that has played 66, 61, and 62 games the last three seasons. Uh, he's always hurt. Uh, and it's hard to count on a guy who you're using as your 1D when he's only playing four-fifths of a season. Uh, and I think at some point, the Oilers decided, you know, if we're really going to move forward... We have to have someone who we can count on day in and day out. And I think Oliver Ekman Larson's only missed 12 games in the last seven years. Like, really, really durable. And it's fair to argue he's maybe not an elite 1D anymore, but certainly he's a 1D. Uh, maybe he's, you know, somewhere between 15 and 20. But on the Oilers, he would immediately become your number one defenseman by a mile. And so I, I think that's what the Oilers are looking at is they just don't think they can count on Clefbaum health-wise, and the McDavid clock is ticking. You know, they've, they've got to do something here, and I don't think they feel they have a couple of years to just bring a defense along without Oscar Clefbaum, who looks like he could, could be going on LTIR. Um, I think they feel they need to do something now in order to keep the train moving forward. So, Bruce, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to first read Elliot Friedman's quote this morning, Bruce, and I'm going to get you to react. This is from Elliot Friedman today. And his quote is, quote, one situation Edmonton is monitoring. Oscar Clefbaum is weighing options to deal with injuries from last season. One of the possibilities is surgery that could keep him out long term. And in parentheses, obviously, we don't know what when next season will begin. His absence would need his absence would need to be addressed. Unquote. Bruce, how did you take that news today? Uh, I took it the same way as that uh, as that oft-used Bruce Boudreau gif, where the subtitle says "darn," and <laughs> if you read his lips, you'll see something else. So this is a family podcast. I'll say "darn." <laughs> uh, I uh, the thing that baffles me is. 
The Oilers played their last game on August the 8th. If he's contemplating surgery, how come it's September 30th and we're still contemplating the surgery? Like, at what point do you make a darn decision and get her done? Bruce, this is this is the the this is baffling, and this rumor on some uh, like this rumor coming out baffles me. Who does it benefit? Usually, when a rumor comes out, the first thing I ask myself: Who does this benefit? Who who leaked this to Elliot Friedman? Elliot Friedman is, of course, highly credible NHL reporter. Probably he's the best NHL reporter right now. He he's the most uh, tuned in NHL reporter. This is credible information. So he could have just pieced it together, like as he does. Like he he sometimes just pieces things together. He's hearing this, that puts the three things together, comes up with this. This seems highly specific information, though, coming from one source, probably. I'm guessing. Who is that source? Who does this information benefit? Because it doesn't seem like it benefits the Edmonton Oilers. Like, do you want Clefbaum's market being dropped down? Now, of course, my other thought is any serious trading partner, let's say there was a team really interested in Clefbaum. You couldn't hide this from them, right? I don't think you could. This isn't the NHL era where you could maybe 50 years ago or 40 years ago, you could hide this kind of thing and trade a player. But in today's world with contracts, insurance, all that kind of stuff, there would need to be complete and utter disclosure. So any team that was really serious with the Oilers, I'm guessing the Oilers have put this news out to other teams that they're dealing with some time ago. So maybe this would benefit that team in trying to drive down the price of Clef Bomb or like, you know, make the Oilers pay more for something. The leak could have come from there. But I again, I, I'm just guessing at this point. I have no idea. But it's just, it doesn't, this this is not a happy moment necessarily for the Oilers, even if any other team try, trying to trade for Clefbaum would have had all this information. Kurt, in terms of OEL, I'm not like, I know that on, on uh, Bob Stoffer's show, he's talked to a number of hockey experts, Brian Burke and um, I think Lott, Brian Lawton. These are two really smart hockey guys. And they have both said, like you, that, that OEL is 10 to 15 uh, ranked in the NHL, like a like a top number one D-man. When I look at the statistics, Kurt, like, you know, and these are basic statistics. How much does the coach trust you to play in overtime, shorthanded, even strength? How many points are you putting up in, those, in, in some of those situation shots on net? So these are pretty telling stats. OEL doesn't rank in the top 15 in the NHL in these numbers. This includes time on ice, His the trust of the Arizona coaching staff in him. He ranks 50, uh, 57th. So I would say he's a top pairing defenseman at this point by the numbers. Now, we can also go by what we've seen of, Clef, of OEL. And that's been a little bit from an Oilers fan's perspective in the games we've seen him in recent years has not been entirely encouraging. He's been beaten by McDavid a number of times. So I'm just worried that my whole fear on this whole thing is this seven more years, $8.25 million for a 29-year-old defenseman who was a number one defenseman, and Tippett certainly will remember him that way in his mind, but he's not that player anymore. So I'm really hesitant on this deal. Now, Clefbaum being hurt changes it somewhat for me, but I also think Caleb Jones is ready to step up. I've been saying that for some time. I actually believe that to be true. Well, so, the problem is Caleb Jones isn't ready to be a 1D or or even a 3-4. A good organization start a guy like like him as a 5-6, right? And if the Oilers are doing it right, I think that's what they should do. With 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 great respect, I think you're being tough on OEL. If you take a, a look, one durability, I've already mentioned, he never misses any time. His time on ice, the last two seasons, is 30 seconds off his career average. So his time on ice hasn't changed measurably. 
And the other thing that I would point out is in the last 18 months, OEL lost a parent. Uh, and from what I understand, he was very, very, very close to that parent. We saw the impact uh, of losing a father had on, on, on Adam Larson. Uh, you know, think a comparable impact on, on this player. Time heals all wounds, they say. Uh, if that's the case, um, there's some explanation why perhaps his play has been off a little bit the last season. If we kind of put one and one together, I, I think we get two. Um, uh, the other thing is you he's mentioned been on a crappy team. he's been on a crappy team. And as you say, McDavid's beat him a couple times. Well, I'll put that on my business card. NHL defenseman McDavid has beat me a couple times. <laughs> Join the club. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm with you that I think at one time he was one of the top five defensemen in the NHL. I don't think he's that now, but I still strongly believe, believe he's a 15, 20 and a number one, every day of the weekend, twice on Sundays on, on an Oilers club. And I think he would be for at least the next three, four years, which is that time that's ticking on the McDavid clock, as I referred to before. So this would be uh, the first pick this year, Kurt? The Oilers would give up? Plus Russell? Plus James Neal? <laughs> I know you'd love that salary to go the other direction. Uh, what I suspect is that Arizona is is asking for a defensive prospect in addition to the one in Russell. And I'll talk about Russell in a second. Um, I'm sure they would like Broberg or Bouchard. I'm positive the Oilers don't want to give up either one of them. Um, would you make this deal uh, in, a, in, a, in a flat cap era where Arizona is really, really shy on cash if you put Dmitry Samarukov in that deal? I think Arizona would think about it. Uh, so, yes, I think they'll want a prospect, but I think Ken Holland will do everything he can to not make Evan Bouchard a part of that deal. Bruce, what's your, t like, first, Bruce, uh, what do you think about Kurt and I have a, st I'm not actually saying that I'm right about OEL as mm -hmm. a, just a top pairing D-man because I haven't seen him enough myself to, to, to make that statement with confidence. I'm just going by some pretty indicative numbers and a limited viewing. So I could easily be wrong, and, I, and I'll grant you that, Kurt. But I'm not sure everyone else weighing in on whether OEL is a true number one defenseman has seen him play 30, 40 times last year, for instance, either, which I think is what you need to do to make that kind of assessment. And the Oilers should be doing it right now. If they're not, they're not doing their job. But they have some, that's his job to do that, right? To, to make that assessment, to watch that team every game. So um, that's not me. Bruce, what's your take on his, his uh, play? Well, one area where he is top five in the NHL is he is the number five uh, highest cap hit of any defenseman currently <laughs> behind Eric Carlson, Drew Doughty, Roman Yossi, P.K. Subban, uh, and that's it. That's all. Uh, so by taking on that kind of a cap hit, you expect that kind of a performance, and that's for seven years out. So, I mean, mind you, in the future, he probably will gradually move, work down that list as, uh, as contracts and maybe start to pick up again uh, uh, two or three years from now. But uh, that is, that's a heavy price to pay. And then the acquisition cost on top of that, it's the double whammy that is of concern. The owners don't have a lot of cap space. Now, presuming that Clefbaum might wind up on long-term injured reserve, that creates some cap space, but it comes with a few headaches as to how they get them in there. And... Moving out the one year of Chris Russell's contract, I mean, that creates room this year, and that, that was space that 
we knew that was coming next summer no matter what. Well, if you move out Russell, that helps solves half of the first year of OEL's cap hit. And then you're left with the six additional years at eight million. You're not freeing up cap space there. Uh, on the on the good side, I mean, Kurt mentioned uh, Adam Larson and uh, Oliver Ekman Larson and Adam Larson were a pairing and an extremely fine pairing for Sweden at the World Championships in both uh, 2018 and 19. They won a gold medal together in 2018. I think both of them made the tournament all-star team. They were terrific in that world <clears throat> world championship. So the prospect of bringing him on and pairing him up with uh, Adam Larson uh, does have some appeal, I have to say. If I could add to that, I understand in the exit interviews, Adam Larson made it very clear to the Oilers that he wants wants to stay in North America, wants to stay with the Oilers. So there's a conversation about him remaining with the franchise long term. So as to Bruce's point, if you think of Ekman Larson Larson as your one two for the next three seasons, that's a that's a more than serviceable first first pairing. Adam Larson played his best hockey as an Oiler, I think, in uh, January, February of this year. He was he was he was an outstanding defensive defenseman um, in a top pairing role, and then he had a bit of a blip in the playoffs. But he was you know, obviously yeah. he was hurt, so that's that's frustrating. Okay, I'm going to end this part of the segment with a with a pointed question, which I want a yes or no answer from both of you, Bruce. And uh, <laughs> Bruce, your question is. You get the um, you get the easier question, which is if the Oilers offered first pick this year, Samarukov and um, Chris Russell for Ekman Larson, would you do that deal? Yes or no? Oh boy! The new news does change the equation that they've got a big gaping hole in the top four. Uh, but boy, would that create salary headaches, uh, even with Russell gone. Uh, I would reluctantly, I'll say yes. I, would, um, I understand the impatience and the need to move, but it comes, it's comes, with, it comes with huge risk. I'm I'm I, yes, certainly more on the fence would. as well. Yeah, I'm on the fence at least. Like I'm on the fence, and I've I've put you in the spot of having to say yes or no. So if I'm I, I'm not going to apply that same standard to myself, of course. Kurt, uh, I'll get back to that. Kurt, uh, here's the trade I want you to say yes or no to. The trade is Evan Bouchard or Philip Broberg, plus a first, plus Chris Russell. For Oliver Ekman Larson, Kurt, do you do that trade? Uh, I can't give you a yes or no to that because you you put variables in your question. Okay, um, let's start with Evan Bouchard. Evan Bouchard, Chris Russell, and the first. Yes. Philip Broberg, Chris Russell, and the first. No. Okay, I I would say no to to Russell or Broberg, or not excuse me, uh, Broberg or uh, uh, Bouchard. That's a no for me. I'm not doing that trade. That's too much to pay for Oliver Ekman Larson. Yeah, yeah. See, uh, to me, Ekman Larson is a true number one, and I think Broberg can be. I think Bouchard has the chance to be a really good power play guy, but as an overall defenseman, I don't think he'll ever be more than a three-four. Okay, that's fair enough. 
Um, and and as, as for the other question, I'm I guess uh, put it this way: I'm not going to complain about it if it happens. If they give up Sam or Rukov Russell in the first reckon of Larson, I'm not going to complain, and I'll and I will get a ho- hope for the best. Let me throw uh, one more wrench into this. Go ahead. Uh, I, I've I've kept saying that the Oilers could send Arizona a first. I didn't say their 14th overall pick. Maybe next year. I'm not ruling out that the Oilers might not move someone else out this year for a first. So they'd have two firsts. So they'd still have one and have one to deal. And that helps move out salary. Okay, who would they move out, Kurt? This is the obvious question for another first. Can you who, say? Who who on your club do you think you'd get, you could get a first for? And let's let's well, agree that and let's agree McDavid and Dry are the only two untouchables on the team. You could get a first for Darnell Nurse. Yep. You sure you could. You could get a first for Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Yes, you could. And I think you could have for a healthy uh, uh Oscar Clefbaum, but you couldn't yes. right now. Anybody else? Ethan Bear. You could get a low first round pick for Ethan Bear, I believe. Maybe. Yeah. So, I would give. so 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 there's the wrench that I throw into the works. Uh don't think just one first. Maybe there's two firsts at play here. Kurt right. is like what's the what's that movie? Uh it's the Sphinx, you know, like the cryptic the cryptic comment here. If they All trade right. nur- if they trade nurse and cleft bombs hurt, then OEL's gonna have to play about forty five minutes a night. <laughs> Phil well, Jones. Yeah. I think they have tried out Caleb Jones as a third-pairing defenseman two years in a row, honestly. And um, so I think that – I don't think it's – he's, what, 23? I don't think it's unexpected or untoward to expect him to be a second-pairing – Caleb Jones a second-pairing defenseman this year. He excelled last year in a third-pairing role. Um, what did Ethan Bear do before he excelled both as a bottom-pairing? And, and I know, like, you can't use one player and say the other player is going to be just like him. But having watched Caleb Jones and Ethan Bear at the same level, I think Caleb Jones is as good a player as Ethan Bear. So uh, they're different players, but I think you could trust Caleb Jones as your second pairing defenseman this year. So And think of how many $1 million defensemen are going to be kicking around the NHL this fall slash winter in a flat cap era. Indeed. Indeed. To me, Kurt, the, the key move in this whole thing is moving Chris Russell. And I wonder if Chris Russell, I wonder when he had, does anyone know when he had to give that list to the Oilers of his um, teams that he wouldn't go to? I wonder if he slapped Arizona on that list at the time, or if it's not on the list. Like, would he be a guy who would have put every Canadian team on the list? Chris Russell might not have been that guy. Like most NHL players just automatically put every Canadian team on their no-go list. But maybe Russell's thinking, well, Calgary, I would go to Vancouver. Uh, Maybe he would. He's, He's a little bit of a different kind of guy, Chris Russell. He's a, he's a hometown guy. Yep, I don't, I don't pretend to know. I don't pretend to know the answer to that, but I but I buy your 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 point that Russell's probably not going to be the guy that's going to look down his nose at, at any particular market. So, Kurt, that's that's your assignment for this week to find out uh, Chris, <laughs> <laughs> Chris Russell's <laughs> no I'll, no goals. I'll, or... I'll phone down to Caroline and see what I can find out. Yeah. All right, guys, let's move on uh, and let's deal with some of these other trade rumors which have been. Swirling, swirling, swirling. So Drager, Darren Drager of TSN last night had the Oilers interested in uh, OEL. But I mean, this has been, if you haven't been able, I mean, not to put down Drager's rumor, he, he was, it, it seemed like it was dying down a bit. And Drager said, no, this is, it's, this is continuing to, to go along. But the other, the other interesting thing was they're talking about the goalie situation with either Jacob Markstrom 
or Peter Mrazek being um, possibilities. I don't see the Oilers having money for Markstrom. I just think that's, you know, I guess if you moved out uh, Russell and bought out James Neal, you might have money for Markstrom and all your other needs, but I don't see them doing uh, buying out James Neal. And if they moved out Russell, they would need that money elsewhere. So I don't see that level of goalie who's going to get five or $6 million a year as a possibility, honestly. Mrazek made three million last year. He's been an up and down goalie. He he kind of goes from like having a close to a nine hundred save percentage to close to a nine twenty save percentage, with more likely to have the nine hundred save percentage year to year. He's had some really good years and bad years. He's kind of paid fairly highly three three million. That didn't seem like it was going to be the cheapest option either. Bruce, what did you think of those 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 rumors? Well, I think they're looking probably for a one B. Or, or a high two. We're yeah. looking for somebody to play 40 to 50% of the games with uh, with uh, Koskinen likely slated for 50 to 60% at 4.5 million. Uh, I don't mind a goaltending budget that's 10% of the salary cap. I mean, every night you're dressing 20 players and two of them are goalies. Uh, so you know, you'd like to have a little bit of slush, but, you know, around 8 million is good. The right guy came along. If they got Kemper... And then they had to go to nine million. Well, that's a bit high, but then goaltending suddenly is a strength of your team as opposed to just a break-even point. Uh, but um, uh, an established goalie in the three million dollar range is—I is, uh, mean, Mike Smith. By the time they paid his bonuses, was two point seven something million. By the time they prorated that last bonus, uh, so you're not talking about a huge difference from that. And I think you're probably talking about a better goalie. Uh, in the case of uh, of Mrazek, and he is a little up and down, as you say, but uh, uh, he's uh, he's played in a one A one B situation in Carolina, uh, and he uh, he's you know he's held his own at least in that scenario. Like he's not he's not the he's not the worst solution. That's for sure. Kurt, uh, I do know that the Oilers have inquired about both Kemper. Uh, and about Mrazek. If you think about Mrazek's past, what connection does he have to today's Edmonton Oilers? Yeah, played for Holland in Detroit. And this is this had me worried about the sweet tooth syndrome. Yeah. We saw this play out with uh, former GM Peter Shirelli with the Lucic contract, with Spooner contract. So, so there's a little bit of uh, PTSD on the part of Oiler fans about this sweet tooth syndrome. Yeah. And fair enough. And you know what? I, I agree with what Bruce said about percentage of the cap. It makes good sense. If you don't have goaltending, it doesn't matter what else you have. What I will say, though, again, because this is such a unique year with the flat cap, I don't think the Oilers will need to overspend to get a second goaltender that's as good as Miko Koskinen, because I think the market will be flooded with them. And I think if they... If they hold their cards longer at any position, I think it will be at goaltender because there will just be so many of them available. That's my point, too. I think like the three million for Mrazek, you might not have to pay that much for a goalie as good as Mrazek. I don't think Mrazek is as good as Miko Koskinen, at least not last year. Um, it could be recency bias on my part, but from watching Koskinen last year, he was a damn good goalie most of the year. Yep, a little I bit of a slump here, here and there, nine... Like Markstrom save percentage last year, they're similar ages, similar sizes. Markstrom save percentage was uh, nine eighteen, and Koskinen's was nine seventeen. No. They they were the I think the 
14th and 15th ranked starting goalies for safe percentage. Yet there's all this buzz and excitement about Mark and it, Mark Markstrom. Yeah. <laughs> and and caught people are kind of uh Koskinen. And, Mark, and I get it. was good in the playoffs. It's That's a recency it, bias. Yeah, that's right. And and with Kemper, I mean, people forget that until the last 18 months, Darcy Kemper wasn't a number one goaltender. Uh, and we've seen lots of guys, <coughs> Cam Talbot, who look like a number one goaltender for a season, season and a half. That happens, right? There's such narrow margins between good and great in the NHL. Uh, I'm just not 100% convinced that Darcy Kemper is a true number one goaltender. I think it's more likely he's a 1B or a 2A. Yeah, there's lots of hype. People are so enthusiastic about Camper Brian Burke. I mean, has talked about him in such glowing terms. And and you look at his career and you think, well, there's like it's up and down, and then suddenly explosion in Arizona, and then but Anti Ranta is only a few percentage points behind him in save percentage last year. Yeah, um, is I'm just not Ant- sold. Maybe Ranta's the way to go. Like, I mean, he I think he earns about four million a year, if I'm not mistaken. So that's pretty expensive as well. He does, so, and he's yeah. uh, pre—he's prepaid. He, they only have, they only owe him two million, and they have a four and a quarter million cap hit. So he has the same appeal to Arizona that Chris Russell does, cash cash lower than cap hit. So yeah, I that's real that he's key the guy for, that moves. I think it's Kemper that moves. Yeah, I, I agree with Bruce. From what I understand about ownership in Arizona, is that the is that the um, the pandemic and the, and the resulting fold in the U.S. economy has really hurt that ownership because their holdings were hit particularly hard. And so they don't have cap issues in Arizona. They have cash issues in Arizona. So I think that will speak to a lot of the decisions that they make in the next month. Well, there's rumors some teams are going to have trouble meeting this next payroll, which starts before the season's going to start. And, you know, if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. Like, yep. it doesn't just suddenly come out of nowhere. You don't have the money. And if no one's going to give it, lend it to you, you don't have it. So what do you I do? Mem- I remember the Rebel League, David, and so do you. So do you, <laughs> yeah, Kurt. Yeah. yeah. All, yeah. All, the, all the who's going to, you know, who's going to pay for the flight while we fly uh, Wayne Gretzky to Winnipeg or Edmonton? And who was it? Eddie Mio put it on his credit card. Right? <laughs> <laughs> And they didn't even check his limit, right? It was. Yeah, <laughs> here's your mandatory 70 sports reference. Uh, so yeah, there's talk about some NHL teams having to move players because they can't pay their no can't pay their bonuses. But I understand the bonuses have already. If I'm not mistaken, I thought the bonuses were paid already to the players who got their signing bonuses this year. So like McDavid, right, who gets most of his money in a bonus, I think he's already been paid. If I'm if I'm correct there was about that. Late bonuses reported in Arizona. And if Ranta hasn't got his bonus yet, then maybe that does change the equation. If yeah. the new team takes that on and eats it, uh, you know, then then maybe. But uh, So some guys might be waiting for their money already. Well, the NHL, of course, could give a loan, right? On top of the tens of millions of dollars which have been flushed down the toilet in Arizona already, uh, they could give a loan to the Arizona team to keep that team going. Gotta I just, love revenue sharing. <laughs> <laughs> I would have loved it. I would have loved it from 1990, 1990 to 2005. I have to admit, if I'm not a, you know, I can't be a complete hypocrite on this point. I would have loved the kind of revenue sharing back then that we have now. Uh, on Holland's sweet tooth, uh, the sweet tooth syndrome, the reason it comes up right now is Athanasiu and Green trades don't look very good at this very moment. And part of that is the whole world's changed because of COVID. That's not Ken Holland's fault. 
Um, and the Athanasi trade would look a little different with a $85 million cap, $86 million cap. That's Although if sure. he took the team to arbitration and got $4 million, uh, it might not be looking very good then either. Nonetheless, th- there is a little bit of concern about f- former coaches, managers, kind of being putting a little bit too much value on players that they know better than others. Tunnel vision, Bruce indicating there for people listening on the podcast. So I'm a, I'm a little bit worried about tunnel vision with OEL, honestly. Like this is my, to get back to that point, the Tippett really does remember him as the defenseman he was. Now maybe he can be that defenseman again, but I'm, I just, <sighs> it's a concern. And it's mainly because of the Lucic thing, I probably admit, because it's just so firmly in my head, Kurt. But man, that that killed the that killed that contract. That one move. This is the kind of move you've got to get right. You've got to get it right. Otherwise, it kills your franchise for five years. And that's what the the Lucic contract did. That is doing that right now before our very eyes. We still have the Chris Neal, the James Neal contract killing us because of the Lucic thing. Because of one terrible freaking decision made by by a GM with. Sweet tooth syndrome. So this is my concern about OEL. And yeah, the problem was Milan Lucic was never a six million dollar player. He was never a first line winger. Whereas OEL is. I think that's the difference. Because with Lucic, I'm I'm with you, David. And I won't be a hypocrite either. I didn't hate the trade as much at the time as I did now. I, I'll, I'll I'll be honest about I, that. Yeah. But but looking back, yeah, it was an awful misstep. Uh, but I see these as two different situations. And and they are. They are, they're two different players, but I'm just kind of going by hockey actuarial tables and and 29-year-old defensemen. How do players usually do in their 30s? Are they the same player they were in their 20s? Well, some really, really good defensemen. Lots of really good defensemen can keep playing strong hockey till they're 35 or 36. And that's I the thing about OEL. I've been watching a lot of tape of him, and his skating doesn't look any different to me than it has over the last 10 years. And, and what are the two unmistakable signs of a player aging and past his prime. One is durability. We've just said he never misses any time. His, his time in ice is only 30 seconds off his career average. And when you watch him, he's still an elite NHL skater for a defenseman. So, yeah, he's, he's 29, right? Um, but he doesn't play like, like a typical 29-year-old. Uh, and that's what gives me more confidence than I might normally. So it doesn't look like he's lost a step. Yeah. I watched Lucic too to convince myself that was a good trade at the time. I watched it for like six, six games. You and mentioned I just, that to me. Yeah. I just watched it six <laughs> games and then I realized I'm never doing that again because it's so misleading. Like, I honestly think, like I really, like it, for me to weigh in on players from other teams, the, the point I've reached in my own kind of hockey analysis, I have got to have watched that player play, you know, 20, 30, 40 times, a minimum 20 times where I'm taking careful notes, watching him play. Yeah. Before I'm going to say with any kind of certainty. So for me, the yes or no question about OEL is really hard because of that. I, I just haven't, I can't have a credible opinion on his value, if I'm completely honest, because I haven't put in the time to, to form that opinion um, accurately. And I know there's some people convinced that they can look at numbers, they can look at various numbers, and they can say with all certainty, with a vast amount of certainty, yes, we should get this player, and yes. I think that is complete and utter BS. Yes. There's my hot take of the day. That kind of analysis is complete and utter BS, at least the amount of certainty with which it's often stated. 
I, yeah. I will use numbers, all kinds of numbers, and I'm in favor of using all kinds of numbers in analysis. But if you're starting to say things with certainty based on the publicly available numbers, at least, I don't I don't even read any of that analysis anymore. I don't think it's worth me reading it because I, I just don't think it has any much weight attached to it. If they're that smart, why aren't they a general manager? <laughs> well, if the numbers were that good. I mean, if these publicly available numbers were that good, no no NHL GM could make a mistake because you just go on these publicly available numbers and you could go back and look at all the trades based, all the signings like the Benoit Pouliot signing and on and on based on these numbers and say, oh yeah, that really worked out and it works out 90% of the time or 80% of the time or what's a good percentage of the time. So anyway, I'm ripping here, Bruce. Do you have any, do you have any comment on, on my comment? Just that the Oilers have a long history of signing long-term deals, uh, let's call them five-plus-year deals, uh, with guys in their young 20s who have covered the bet and with yes. guys in their late 20s and early 30s who haven't covered the bet. Um, yeah, you know, that's fair, because if you look back at those $6 million contracts, you have to say that Taylor Hall was a $6 million player. Mm -hmm. uh, I think in the majority, but not all of the seasons, Jordan Eberle was a $6 million player, if you mm -hmm. look at his production. Yeah. And I think Ryan Nugent Hopkins, in, in probably at least half or more of his seasons, more recently, I would suggest, than in his past, he's probably a $6 million player. Mm -hmm. So when you look back at those contracts, they don't look bad now. And at the time, and I think one, I think two of those were, maybe two of those were Shirelli signing, were, um, no, were uh, uh, one was a Tam... Hall was was uh, was Tambellini, right? Hall and Everly were Tambellini. Were both Tambellini, and, yeah. And R&H was uh, McTavish. Was was McT. And so then and then Chirelli uh, Ch signed long-term Clefbaum, then McDavid, then Drysaddle to very long-term contract. All good and contracts. The thing, right and the thing now. is that in those contracts, uh, five years after the contract is signed, the player is five years better, and the cap. The league salary cap is five years bigger and, and it becomes more and more value. Whereas you sign a 30-year-old, five years later, that guy's five years older. And that's no longer a good thing because he's on the other side of that cliff. And we yeah, know the yeah. cap's not going up this time, right? Now this the is the other thing about Ekman Larson's yeah. contract. Like it's this $8 million that just doesn't have that inflationary factor working for it. Same with Drysaddle and McDavid's contract. So the owners yeah. would then have these three massive contracts Ah, uh, so yeah. anyway, like... Yeah, I think we can agree those long contracts, for the most part, haven't been the problem for the Oilers. It's been the Nikita and Nikitin contracts that have oh, bit them. Yeah, and Lucic and Pouliot and uh, uh, Sekera that are all still on the payroll in one form yeah. or another. Yeah, that, Reggie, uh, good, good pro, right? UFA's. But probably a million and a half a year too much, so yeah. The, 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 the interesting point, so Bruce, you're making a really good point, and what those players have in common is if you subtract age is they were generally healthy so player and what we could say is players in their 20s are generally more healthy than players in their 30s so kurt you're you're contradicting your your counter argument is well oel is the exception to the general rule and that he's been really healthy he's a healthy guy and i will acknowledge i think if you look at defense who look who which kind of defensemen tend to last longer in the nhl and what we find is defensemen who can really really freaking skate Guys yep. who are great on their skates and don't get injured a lot. That's usually um, correlating with a player who can continue to play well. And we think of Brian Rafalski, that kind of defenseman, into their 35, 36, 37 years. These guys who can, who've got great wheels. So 
you know, again, if if the if they can get him for the first pick, Samarukov and Chris Russell, I think I could live with that. I think I could have, live with have that. Have we Kurt- converted you? <laughs> well, your arguments are well. The cleft bomb information is also that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the main factor right now. I wasn't thinking about that. Um, you know, he, he misses time, but he also played really well this year, Oscar Clefbaum did. Mm-hmm. And he's played well in the past. And like I like I don't hold him as high in high value as some people do, but I think he's a, a good top four NHL uh top oh, four pairing. Sure. Yeah, top yeah, four I, on absolutely. your NHL D man. So Yeah. I've said to a lot of people Oscar is, Clefbaum's a three. That's mm-hmm. who he is, right? Yeah, that's a fair comment, Kurt. I, I think the orders have used him as a one, um, but that's probably a little higher use. I mean, he's really adapted well on the power play. He was a yeah. fantastic power player this year for the Oilers. Although, again, Chicago did catch on to what the Oilers were doing by the end and were giving Clefbaum the point shot. And that's not the strength of his game, uh, is getting that point shot in in a dangerous way, even if, if the other team gives it up a little bit. Oh, the last of the rumors was uh, Bob Stoffer talking about the Oilers maybe trading down in the draft, trading down uh, from their first pick, maybe 28th to Ottawa, or was it 28th? And then 29th, 30th, there's a couple, I think it's um, Dallas, and I can't remember who has the other pick, but trading down and getting a couple second or a second pick for that pick. What do you guys think of that idea, Uh, Bruce? Well, Kurt was mentioning earlier that uh, if the Oilers trade a first to Arizona as part of this deal, if they can trade down first and then trade that, then whatever else they got in that trade is kind of a bonus, uh, depending on what uh, what Zona is looking for. Uh, The trouble is the Oilers have traded out so many draft picks in these short-term deals. I mean, the next two years, they're without both of their seconds, one-third, one-fourth, one-fifth. So basically, they have their two first-rounders for now, and they have a big gaping hole in both drafts where they don't have a lot of picks in the second, third, fourth rounds. So it would help to flesh that out somehow, but you know, if the, if the cost is to trade out from a, from a fairly surefire NHLer to one way down near the bottom of the, of the first round, well, that's, you know, that's the risk. And is it worth the price of, of gaining, you know, a couple more picks? I mean, the year they traded the Zach Parise pick and they got uh, uh, Mark Puglia. And with the bonus pick they received in return, J.F. Jacques, they badly <laughs> lost that exchange. It's po- certainly possible to win such exchanges. But it's uh, uh, you have to make whatever pick you get back in return. you got to make the top one count. Uh, I like where they are at 14. So I'd be reluctant. If, I mean, this year they need to come out of the draft with at least one real good player, and that 14 is the ticket to that player. Uh, but if you can tr- find a trade down that keeps you in the in the you know in the in the prime group of bumper crop uh, rookies or draft picks, and add something in the second round, you have to consider it. Yeah, what do you think of the bill? What is it? Is it who is the New England guy? Parcells? No, uh, what's the name of the guy who runs the Patriots? Hoodie. Bill Belichick. Belichick. That theory of what what you really want to do is have as many bullets in your gun as you you, you can fire off 
So you trade down to get more picks because it just it just gives you, you know, it just increases your odds of getting a good player. Maybe that works in football though, where you're looking for a lot more players, and the and the great the one great player isn't really what you're looking for. Where in hockey, that one great player kind of is what you're looking for, rather than replacement level players. You can find those replacement level players, but what you need is a superstar. So maybe the Belichick theory um, doesn't hold as much. Kurt, what is your take on trading down? Yeah, I'm reluctant to. Uh, I got to say, while the Oilers didn't win the lottery, they did back into a pretty good pick. Um, 14 is better than they should have, could have had. Uh, and there's a hell of a lot of good players that are going to be available at 14. Uh, I do believe the organization is really trying to figure out a way to add a pick because they know they're they're down a pint. Uh, but I'm with Bruce. Boy, I'd be reluctant at 14. I mean, it always depends what the what the return is, right? So I guess you never say never, but I'm, I'm, I'm with Bruce. Give me an R for reluctant. So one of the things that I like in hockey analysis when using numbers is kind of actuarials where you look at players at this age, this kind of player, um, how do they do going forward? You know, what, what do players like that do similar players at age 30, 31, 32. So for the draft, looking at 17 year olds, someone who's looked at this in depth is Brad McPherson of the blue bullet report and he's assigned he's looked at drafts over 20 years or more and he's assigned what is the actual value of that pick if the first pick is worth 100 points what is the value of every pick in terms of what kind of nhl career you're going to performance you're going to get out of that player so for instance the first pick is worth 100 points the second pick is worth 84 points the third pick 65.5 points when you get down to the 10th pick, it's 26.2 points in terms of NHL career value. So it's about a quarter of the value of the top pick, generally what you're going to get out of the 10th pick. When you get to the 14th pick, it's one-fifth the value of the first overall pick. So essentially you'd need five, uh, five uh, to get that same value as the first pick, you need five uh, 14th overall picks. It's 21.1. So the... This gets in interesting when you get down to, if you're going to get like the 29th pick in two seconds, well, second picks, according to Brad, are generally worth about four points each. And the 20, 28th pick is worth 11 points. So we're, we're looking at about 19 points for those. That's three picks. That's a late first and two seconds, two mid-round seconds. That's, that's uh, what did I say, 19 points. And the 14th is worth 21. And if you just, and if, and if your real goal is to get that one really super player hanging on to that pick seems rather than spreading it out among weaker players hanging on to that top pick seems to make a lot of sense um so i'm i'm in the camp of keeping it the only the only way that you change that is this let's say the orders of scouting staff we, we hear this draft is full absolutely full of top forwards and let's say the order staff has said looked at this list and they said there's about eight guys that are that we could take at 14 and they're all really close you know there's maybe there's seth jarvis and jack quinn who are if they're there we we will take them because they're they're in a whole different category than these other eight guys but if those two guys are gone and there's no defenseman that we want or no goalie and there's these eight other guys and they're all kind of the same if, if, if you're completely honest like why don't we trade down then and that's when it would make sense to me if if the scouting staff, with all their hockey acumen and as much as they've they have watched these players come to that determination, there's very little to separate these other players. 
then maybe trading down isn't the worst idea in the world. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think it's different in a year like this where the draft is deeper. Uh, and I wonder if, and I, I, don't, I don't know, so I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, but I wonder if his math uh, includes years like this where, where that depth does reach down to the mid-teens, whereas some years it only goes down as deep as six or seven. Um, so I, I think that's a factor. Um, I, I, I buy there's a big difference between first and second and everybody else, because if you make a comparison to the music industry, people often don't understand this. The difference between a number one hit and a number 10 hit is thousands and thousands and thousands of spins. People think a number 10 song is a big hit. It is not. It's nowhere close to a number one. And if, and if you apply that logic to hockey, yeah, a number 10 pick is nowhere close to a number one. And there's always going to be variables like injury and, and what have you. Um, but yeah, it's just the higher your pick, the more valuable it is, which is why I'm reluctant to move down. Hey, man, sweet Caroline never made it to number one in the charts <laughs> where I lived. And it had staying power now, didn't it? Yeah, well, it's <laughs> yeah, well, CCR. That look, 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 look at all the hits CCR had. They never had a number one. So Wow. Is that right? Yeah. I, I think when we look at uh, McPherson's numbers and we say like the 14th pick is worth 21 and the first is worth worth 100, it's not like you'd get um, five kind of mediocre players What at 14th overall and that would add up to the first pick. What, what that means is like you're going to have – it's almost like a one-to-one -one ratio of getting a great player at number one, although that's not always the case. But with the with the 14th pick, it's about one in five that you're going to get that really, really, really good player who's going to drive up the value of all those other 14th picks because he averages together all the drafts. So let's say, I can't remember when Alex Hemsky was drafted, but he was around 14th. So he would really drive up that whole group. He would drive up that whole group. So, so what the Oilers are hoping is that they actually, with the 14th pick, they get a player who could be the number one picker close to it in a year any given year. That's really the goal of a first round pick is that you're going to hit it big and get that top line forward. So, you know, Seth Jarvis or, or Jack Quinn. Now with those other eight players, maybe the orders are thinking after Quinn and, and Jarvis, there really is nobody else who is a great bet, but there's all these kind of okay bets. So why would we waste our 14th pick on an okay bet when we can trade it and maybe get two or three of these players on our list um, later in the draft? We can just spread out our bet. So under those circumstances, I think it's a good idea to trade it. But teams hardly ever make this kind of trade in the NHL. And we could say, oh, they just don't understand things. Like, they're not smart enough to make this kind of trade. I don't personally believe that. I think they get it. And I think they're not making that kind of trade for a reason that it usually doesn't make sense. That it's usually, they want to get that top line forward, top line D-man, and your best bet by far is to go with the highest possible pick that you can get. And it probably makes more sense if you can trade up in the draft than do anything else. So, well, in 2003, which was a famously deep draft, when the Oilers traded from 17 to 22, uh, by the time they, with a lot of players in the in the pool, by the time they got their pick at 22, Zach Parise had gone at 17, Ryan Getzlaff at 19, Brent Burns at 20, and all of a sudden that pool was a whole lot shallower than it might have been if they'd have just kept that pick at 17. And, that's, I mean, it's, there are many other examples of teams trading up or down, but I, I remember the ones involving the Oilers, and that one still stings. What's that, what's that old saying about birds and bushes? <laughs> okay, hey, Kurt, when, now that we have you here, I want to ask you about drafting a couple players. And, I, and maybe, maybe you, you can't weigh in, because I, I, like, when it comes to junior players, I can't 
don't have much to say at all other than what the consensus of the experts is. But what do you think of the idea of drafting a goalie and Askarov if he's there? I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I think uh, I think goalies are kryptonite. Uh, it, it, it's and in in almost every case. Uh, these guys, before you know that they're actual NHL goaltenders, they have to spend a year, year and a half in the ECHL, AHL. It's usually a three to five year journey. And boy, it's you're taking such a chance, such a chance. And again, I'll go back, especially when there is going to be so many goaltenders on the market right now. Uh, I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't rule out taking a defenseman. There's two Western Hockey League defensemen out there that'll probably be available between you know, 13 and 16, including the kid out of PA, who I really like and I've written about before. Is that um, Schneider or Gooley? Uh, Schneider and Gooley are the two guys, but yeah. Gooley's the guy from PA. Okay. Uh, Schneider's right-handed shot, Gooley's left-handed shot, but as I understand, <clears throat> Gooley's a really good two-way defenseman. Um, but I'll, I think it's more likely they'll take a forward, but I think what you do is first round, you take the best player available. And if Schneider and Gooley are the, one of the two best players available at 14, I think you take them. Yeah, I, I listening to Brian Lawton on the air, um, he talks about his preferences to build through defensemen. And I completely agree with that. Like just playing hockey, coaching hockey, you get a good defenseman on the ice, that player dominates the game. Absolutely well, dominates the game. And we've seen that with Chris Pronger. We've seen it with Victor Hedman this year. We see it with all of these fantastic NHL demon. If, if it's me... But the the problem with this is, and Jonathan Wills wrote an article about this, is that identifying defense top defensemen isn't as big a strength as identifying top forwards for NHL scouts. They're mm-hmm. much better at picking those those top. It's easier to pick the top to top uh, forwards at age seventeen than it is to pick who's going to be the top demon. Well, so it's that- just a better bet to take a forward and then make a bunch of bets on defensemen like Caleb Jones and Ethan Barron, John Marino, and later rounds. Yeah. That's from an that's, from an acid. Sorry, David. Uh, from an asset management standpoint, uh, defensemen and centermen are the two positions that hold their value the best. Yeah. Right. So I, I think if you're drafting, you draft D's and C's. Bruce? And goalies are, uh, they've become such a mystery that m- most teams have adopted a policy to not spend their first round pick on a goalie. But if you look back in the history of goalies that were drafted in the first round, there are some mighty fine goalies on that list. Uh, from Grant Fuhrer and Tom Barrasso uh, ages ago to Roberto Luongo to Carey Price to Andre Vasilevsky that were all first-round picks that, that paid off. And in several of those instances, the team sort of said, we got to solve our goalie issue. Let's go and grab this this young, um, you know, highly rated netminder. And in the case of Askarov, we're talking about a, a, a best goalie prospect in probably the last five years. It's not just this year he's the guy that's bubbling to the top, but he actually, he may well be gone before it's the Oilers' turn at 14. So it may be a moot point because there are other teams, uh, I'm looking at you, Carolina, that uh, have uh, have uh, an issue to solve uh, between the pipes and just taking that one home run swing at, uh, at the real hot shot. Uh, it sure worked for Tampa Bay now, didn't it? It did, and Askarov, to give him some credit, he's not just, like he, as you say, Bruce, he's he's a little bit of a special 
goalie prospect. Although one year there's like Spencer Knight was talked about pretty glowingly last year. Um, but he's he is in the KHL this year, which mm-hmm. is the second best league in the in the world. They and uh, last time I checked, he was playing games and doing pretty well. So uh, there is that to be said about the player. So again, again, because I don't watch any of these players, like so when a trade's made, if someone's drafted, I, I tend not to freak out. I tend to hope for the best because I, I can't really say. So if the Oilers end up drafting this guy <clears throat> who's played three games in the KHL this year with a 974 safe percentage, which is a very small <laughs> sample size. Um, <laughs> if they end up drafting him, I will be, I will have questions, but I will, I will be okay with that. And we'll just see how <laughs> that's going to work out because he does sound he does sound exci- like an exciting player, but I I'm just hoping Quinn or Jarvis. Those are the two forwards most likely to fall to the Oilers. There's Anton Lundell could fall. There's there's more questions about Anton Lundell in terms of his high end kind of offensive ability that it's just not there and doesn't seem like it's going to ever come um, with this player. So that, that's a little bit worrisome, and I'm seeing some pretty sharp hockey observers make that comment about Lundell. So that worries me, but I'm just hoping they get one of these guys, Quinn or Jarvis, or maybe, maybe, maybe it's John Jason Paterka that the Oilers actually are convinced is the, you know, just to pull out one name is, is, is convinced that it's going to be that top line forward. I hope we get that guy, you know, the next Yamamoto with the 14th overall pick. He should be there. He, he is there. They just have to identify him. He is there. They just have to identify him. Get so right that's what on. I hope happens. Yeah. Now, the thing about these deep drafts <laughs> is that you always sort of rub your hands together and say, well, we could get a really good player. Well, guess what? All the other teams are getting good players, too. So you got to better pick one to keep up. You know, for example, in 2003, I'll go back there again <laughs> yet a third time and note that uh, Oilers divisional rivals, Anaheim Ducks, came out of that with Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry. And the Oilers came out of that with Mark Pouliot and his uh, uh, 100-odd NHL games. And that was a big difference between those two organizations for a decade plus after that. Like a, a huge price to pay when it's a deep draft and you get it wrong. These team-defining moves, eh? Like they, mm-hmm. they really do happen. And it's all about getting that great player who's great for a long time and the Oilers haven't done a very good job of that at all. And they've ended up with a lot of mediocre players between the ages of 27 and 35 who are getting a lot of money and can't play very well instead. That's been the story of this Edmonton Oilers franchise for the, for a long time, too long. So let's hope they can break, <laughs> break that record. All right, guys, anything else? Any other thoughts or closing thoughts? I have, I have one thing to toss at you. Um, in the next seven days, the Oilers uh, and the players' camp are going to have to make a decision on Andreas Athanasiu. Um, I'm hearing from multiple people uh, that Taylor Hall is likely willing to sign a one-year deal, six, seven million dollars, understanding that the cap is what the cap is, but it's a but it's a show me contract. Uh, he's willing to go somewhere and say, see, I'm an MVP quality player at, let's say, $6 million. Um, Keep in mind, Taylor Hall's agent is Darren Ferris, the same guy that represents Andreas Athanasiu. (laughs) 
So if he's willing to do that with one of his best clients, would he be pragmatic enough to go to Athanasiu and say, why don't you take a couple million dollars and show these guys that you're for real? Oh, I thought this was heading towards the Oilers saying goodbye to Athanasiu and trying to sign Taylor Hall. I thought it was going to be a... <laughs> if, uh, if, it, if COVID hadn't come along, I think the Oilers would have been one of the teams shopping for Taylor Hall. I, I don't think they, they are. Uh, but there's an agent with two players. Uh, one of them is already putting out signs that he'd be willing to sign a one-year deal. Uh, and he has way more uh, weight behind him than Athanasiu oh, sure. does. I think it's com- I think that's completely dependent on the player, though, Kurt. Like I know the ag- agent can um, <clears throat> lead the player in a certain direction, definitely. Like the the agent knows the business inside out, knows all the market better. That's his job; it's to know these things, and could, so could direct the player to think that way, and and be quite fair and accurate and open and honest and giving good advice and all those things. But two different individuals: one guy might value money, uh, and the other guy might have a lot of money. Another guy, one guy might have. $8 million in the bank or $5 million in the bank. And another guy might have $50 million in the bank. And that completely changes and alters their perception. Um, Athanasio might be thinking, I need to get as much money out of this hockey career as I possibly can. Well, I can get it. And I would sure. not blame him for one second thinking that. And if he can get more money elsewhere, he should go. He, he, my advice, young man is go get that, go get the money. Well, I think that's right, but who's the team? Yeah. And I Fair and enough. I think that works in the Oilers' favor because I, I think Ken Holland knows that Athanasio can't get $2 million anywhere else. Yeah, fair well, enough. Well, the, mar- the market, is, this year's market's going to be very different with the flat cap. I think we're going to find uh, a week from today that there's going to be some pretty good RFAs all mm-hmm. around the league that don't get qualified that are going to flood the UFA market. And some other teams, Athanasiu might come on the market for two million, where his, the other team refused to pay his QO of three million. I mean, there's there's going to be uh, some musical chairs going on there. I think Ken Holland uh, has a well. First of all, he has a disadvantage of negotiating on a qualifying offer based on the generous two-year, six million dollar deal he gave Athanasiu two years ago. But because it was him. Uh, there's a past relationship with this player, of course, and Holland's selling point is, hey, I treated you fairly last time. I gave you gave you a big contract. You're coming off a tough year. We're in a flat market. Uh, you're in a good situation. It's a very good chance that if you play well, you're going to wind up playing with one of the two best playmakers in the NHL. One-year deal. You're going to have a, a platform after that one year uh, where we're going to have a bit of room to maneuver, and then we can talk about a long-term deal. You would rather be talking to us about a long-term deal after a good season than after the season you just had. And I think that's that's his negotiating platform, and how the player and his and his camp respond to that, who knows? And I'll say this, uh, which kind of contradicts what, what I, the the idea I just put out there. Darren Ferris does not have a reputation for signing club-friendly deals with his clients. Right. He, he, he is known as a guy that grinds for his clients and, and good on him. We all, we all know how badly NHL players were treated for decades and decades, but he doesn't have a reputation of going, I'll cut you a deal. But if yeah. he, uh, if he doesn't cut a deal, 
And then the Oilers don't qualify Athens to see you, and he goes on the market, and he can only get $1.5 million. He hasn't done him any favors. I completely agree. Yeah. I, I, I think this makes all kinds of sense for the player and for the team, uh, but what are the chances of both of them agreeing at that at the same time? Don't know. Most of these players, the last time an NHL player was truly, or, or in general, were treated badly by um, NHL owners and, and the whole system, None of these players were born, I don't think. Like, this is this is this is by now some time ago that that, that like these guys since the 1990s have been very well represented, I think, generally speaking, and making top dollars, especially in the last 20 years. But Kurt, I think this this market and Bruce, wait, Ken Holland, don't qualify Athanasio or Benning. Wait. Because I think this is going to be an absolutely brutal market for player contracts. There's just so many teams you hear about. So many teams that are either up against the cap and needing to sign a player or two, or they're they have a cap where they're gonna they can't spend. They got to spend the bare minimum or a lower amount of money. Lots is going to happen here, and I we'll see what a fantasy you can get. And I maybe you're right. If Ken Holland's willing to give two million dollars right now, they should maybe jump on that because. Who knows where this could go for a lot of players. And um, I just like the idea of Ken Holland keeping his powder dry and, and waiting, waiting, waiting. That even paid off when the cap was going up with Chris Russell's first contract, Riley Shayan's contract. We've seen how that pays off. You just have to be patient and good things very often will come to you and definitely will this year. So let the other teams no, Jeff Petrie just signed. What did he sign for? Six was it six million, six and a half million a year? Six and a quarter million times four years, starting in twenty twenty one. There was no urgency in Bergevin making that deal, as far as I can tell. Why not wait for yeah. a month until the market until the market has just hammered all these players, and then say, "Okay, Jeff, let's talk contract now," because then suddenly you think, "Well, the price for a, a number one D man isn't six, six and a half in a year per year; it's five. And that's what you're going to get. I don't know why you, you know, Colin went with, he gave those, thank goodness he didn't give Shea a contract in January as well when he gave uh, Archibald and Cassian deals. Uh, thank goodness that didn't happen. Because, and, and any GM, I think, lavishing big money right now at this moment, in first in, uh, I think that's a mistake. Especially for contracts that don't even begin until a year from now, like the yeah. Brodeen contract or the, or the Petra yeah. one. I don't know what, they're kind of basing it somewhat on the old market, I think. Why not you yeah. see this new market? Now, maybe they know more than me. Maybe maybe this market's going to be the same, generally speaking, for players. I don't think so. That's not what I'm seeing. So we'll right. see. And the other, the other point that I've made before, and I'll make it again because it's becoming more relevant is uh, you give one of these guys a qualifying offer, all of a sudden now he has the hammer that he can take you to to uh, arbitration. arbitration. I'm talking about Athanasiu and Benning, both. And Athanasiu takes the order, say, they put out the three million, say, well, I guess we can afford three million for the player we thought we were getting. And the player says, I'm going to take you to arbitration. And the arbitrator goes, well... He scored 30 goals the year before last. He's averaged over 20 goals for the two years on his contract. And based on past precedent, players that have performed this much get a raise of 25% or something. And now all of a sudden you're talking about the arbitrator coming back at 4 million instead of 3 million. 
And the team can't even walk away unless he exceeds a, a threshold of something like $4.538 million this year. So anything going to arbitration is is potential disaster for the teams. I think you'll see all the teams avoiding arbitration. So if the, you know if they are going to come to terms with these guys, they're going to make the qualifying offer. They're not just going to make a QO. They're going to sign the guy and say, if you're not willing to sign for this qualifying price, forget it. So I don't think you're going to see much in the way of potential arbitration cases. Because, you know, the arbitrators might go on, here's the realities of 2020, flat cap, teams have got a little, they got squished on, on their margins by a significant amount. The Oilers, I mean, they, they got, instead of having $12 million to spend, they got $8 million to spend. But if the arbitrator is going based on past precedent, uh, past precedent includes always the salary cap going up and up. So... Unless that's established, how the arbitrator is going to go about doing business, uh, getting involved in any of those potential situations is an absolute no-go as far as I'm concerned. Alrighty. Well, thanks for uh, talking today, uh, Kurt and Bruce. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. Mm. Always great to see you, fellas. Oh, you bet. Nice to see you, Kurt. You too, and in it. the mean... Oh, sorry, Bruce. That's okay. <laughs> We always thanks for li- thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> and in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>